can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. As many of you may know, Jewish communities have a reputation for being intelligent. And this is true. There's one exception to the rule. There's a town in Poland called Helm. And the Jews of Helm were not particularly known for their intelligence. And so Jewish people generally learned to think logically through their Talmudic studies, but the Jews of Helm learned to think logically by telling each other riddles. So what is a wise man of Helm? Uh, a wise man of Helm is someone that could uh, solve any riddle brought to him, and he could tell riddles nobody else could solve. And the wisest man of all, Helm, was the rabbi of Helm. Anytime somebody brought him a riddle, he could solve it, but at the same time, he would tell riddles that nobody else could solve. He always had a great desire to visit New York City. It was a time in Jewish history when the Jewish people of New York City alone were larger than even the whole of Israel. And the most famous rabbis or rabbinic schools were all in New York City. And he desired to be able to visit these rabbis and these schools. And so the Jewish community of Helm raised enough money for him to take a one-month trip to New York. Upon landing, he was met by a New York taxi driver that was assigned to take the rabbi to the Jewish community. Now it would be about a 90-minute ride. And so they got into a conversation, and the New York taxi driver asked the rabbi, would you like to hear a riddle? The rabbi says, do I want to hear a riddle? I'm the most famous riddle solver in my whole community. If you tell me a riddle, I better can solve it. A New York taxi driver says, well, here's the riddle. My parents had a child. This child was not my brother nor my sister. Who could this child be? The rabbi is thinking and thinking, trying to solve the riddle. He's unable to figure it out. He's getting close to where he's leaving the taxi. So he finally says, I have to give up on this, although I'm very good at this. But I give up. What was, who was the child your parents had that was not your brother, not your sister? New York taxi driver says, the answer is me. I'm the child my parents had, not my brother nor my sister. And the rabbi says, what a wonderful riddle. I can't wait to go home and tell my people this riddle. They will love this riddle. A month passes, and he flies back. When the first Sabbath came, even the Jews who did not attend the synagogue regularly all came out to find out about the rabbi's adventures. What rabbis did he meet? What synagogues did he visit? And he got up on the podium. He said, I will give you a day-by-day account. But first... While I was in America, I heard this tremendous riddle. Would you like to hear it first? Oh, yes, they all said. We had not heard a good riddle since you left us a month ago. Rabbi says, well, here's the riddle. My parents had a child. This child was not my brother nor my sister. Could this child be? And all this noise break out as they began talking among themselves, trying to solve it. After a while, things got quieter and quieter and finally silence. And the spokesman said, Rabbi, we tried to figure this one out on our own, but we cannot do it. Who was the child your parents had that was not your brother, not your sister? Rabbi said, it was a New York taxi driver I met back in America. <laughs> I've got four rabbi stories from Helm, which I'd like to share with them this evening, so we'll see how I'll break it down. In the Gospel of Matthew... The Messiah goes, uh, is, goes public with his ministry in chapter 4. From chapter 4 to chapter 12, he goes all over Israel, city to city and synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, <clears throat> but also authenticating his claims with many miracles and signs and wonders. The purpose of his signs and wonders from chapter 4 to chapter 12 were to serve as signs for Israel to get Israel to make a decision concerning those claims. And they were to authenticate two things. First of all, this person, that he is indeed the Messiah that was prophesied so frequently by the Old Testament prophets. But secondly, that, uh, that he's offering to them the Messianic kingdom. So if they will accept him as the Messianic king, that could, they, he could establish the Messianic kingdom in their day. But no such kingdom could be established until they first owned him to be the, the, that Messianic king. A change begins to occur in Matthew chapter 12. In verse 22, we read this. 
There was brought unto him one possessed with a demon, blind and dumb, and he healed them insomuch that the dumb man spake or spoke and so on. Now the act of casting out demons of, by itself was not all that unusual in the Jewish world of first century Israel. The Pharisees, their disciples, and other rabbis were also practiced exorcisms or casting out demons. In order to cast out a demon in the ancient Jewish practice, one had to use a ritual. This ritual had three, uh, three specific steps. Number one, the exorcist would have to establish communication with the demon. When a demon speaks, he uses the vocal cords of the person he controls. Secondly, after establishing communication with the demon, he would then have to find out the demon's name. Thirdly, once he knew what the demon's name was, he could then command the demon to go out. And these were the three uh, steps of the ancient Jewish procedure. And there are occasions when the Messiah himself uses that procedure. But because of that three-step procedure, there was one kind of demon that could never cast out, the kind of demon that caused the person controlled to be a mute, so he could not speak. Because he could not speak, there was no way of establishing communication with that kind of a demon, no way of finding out the demon's name. And so within the framework of Pharisaic Judaism, it was viewed impossible to cast this kind of a demon out. The rabbis were teaching that when Messiah comes, he will even cast out these kinds of demons. A while before the Messiah arrived on the scene, the rabbis divide miracles into two separate categories. In one category be those miracles that anyone would be able to perform if he was empowered by, this, by God to do so. But there was another category of miracles which were never performed in the Hebrew Bible, and these were classed as messianic miracles, meaning these would be miracles only Messiah would be able to do. And so in the Gospels, when you see him doing one of these three special miracles, the Jewish reaction was always very different than when he performed miracles of the first category. These were not messianic, but these were. And the first of these special miracles was the healing of a Jewish leper, and the second one would be healing of someone that was born blind, as or against someone that simply went blind. And the third one's was the one we're going to be dealing with here, casting out a dumb or mute demon. And, uh, and in verse 22, that's the kind of demon that he casts out. And that's the question this raises in verse 23. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? As you know, the term the son of David is a messianic title. The point of the question is, could this be the Messiah? He's doing what we have been taught since childhood only Messiah is supposed to be able to do. Now, by this point of time, we, could, we should note he already has performed many exorcisms, cast out many demons. They never raised this question when he cast out those other kinds of demons. The question they raised then was, by what authority does he cast out demons? Now the question changes, not by what authority, but is he the son of David? Is he that messianic king? Now, while the Jewish multitudes are willing to raise the question, what they are not willing to do is simply answer the question for themselves, looking to the leaders, the Pharisees, to make that decision for them. And now the Pharisees have only two options. The first option is to proclaim him to be the Messiah. This they don't want to do because of his previous rejection of the authority of Pharisaic Judaism. The second option would be to... Um, to um, reject him, but if they go with the second option, they will at the same time have to be able to explain away. How come he can do what they themselves were teaching only Messiah was supposed to be able to do? And in verse 24, they go with the second option. And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man does not cast out demons, but Babel's above the prince of demons. And they publicly reject his messianic claims, but then to explain away how can we can do these unique special miracles, they come up with a different uh, answer. That he is possessed not by a common demon, he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And the term Beelzebub is a combination of two words in the Hebrew, meaning the Lord of the flies. 
the Lord of the Flies. And this became the official basis for rejecting him. He's not the Messiah on the grounds of being demonized. Now, this is not only found here in the Gospels. It's also found in the rabbinic writings of this period. One passage of rabbinic writings points out that the reason they had to execute him at the Passover, though it contradicted Jewish law to have any executions on any feast day, had to do with the nature of his crime. His crime was he seduced Israel by practicing sorcery. He seduced Israel by practicing sorcery. There's a close connection between sorcery and demonism. A second passage in the Talmud says this, When he was still living in Egypt, he made these cuts in the skin of his flesh. He inserted into the cuts the four Hebrew letters that make up God's name. In Hebrew, God's name it consists of four Hebrew letters, and he inserted these four letters into his skin, and that's how he could perform the miracles that he, that he did. So neither in rabbinic writings or here in the Gospels do they deny the fact of his miracles. Too many people have seen these signs and wonders. But they ascribe it to a demonic source, and this became the official grounds for rejecting him. The Messiah responded by pointing out two things. First of all, in verses 25 to 29, 25 to 29, this accusation simply cannot be true because it would mean a, it would mean a division in Satan's kingdom. But secondly, verses 30 through 37, he pronounces a special judgment upon that generation of Israel in that they are now guilty of a very unique sin, the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And because this sin is what he calls it, unpardonable, judgment is now set down against this generation, a judgment that would come 40 years later, with the Roman destruction of the city and the temple and the forced dispersion of the Jews around the world. Now we should make it very clear exactly what the unpardonable sin is in the context where it is found, and this is the only context you'll find this sin mentioned. It's also found in Mark and Luke, but the context is the same and must be interpreted by virtue of the context. And we can define the unpardonable sin as follows. Let's see if it's there. Yep. The, na the content of the unpardonable sin is the national rejection by Israel of the messiahship of Yeshua, messiahship of Jesus, while he was present on the grounds of being demonized. Again, national rejection by Israel of the messiahship of Jesus while he was present on the grounds of being demonized. Now, from that definition, let me make four specific ramifications. The first ramification is this. This is a national sin. It's not an individual sin. Individuals, members of that day and that generation, could and did escape the judgment. The greatest example would be the Apostle Paul. And so, and, and so this is the uh, national sin and not individual sin. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for some types of sins, but not for others. He died for every type of sin, which renders every type of sin forgivable to an individual that would come to God through Messiah's blood. But for the nation as a nation, it is now unpardonable. We can summarize it this way. This is a national sin. It is not an individual sin. Second ramification. This is a sin that is unique to the Jewish generation of Messiah's day. It is not um, optional to apply to any other Jewish generation because it was, this, it was to this one generation the Messiah came visibly and physically and proving himself by many signs and wonders. And it was this one generation that rejected him. And so from now on, we'll see two words coming up in our study. This generation this generation, because this generation alone is guilty of this unique sin. Now, the third ramification is that while this is a national sin, no other nation could be guilty of this sin. Jesus is not now visibly, physically present with any other nation, offering himself as that nation's Messiah. That was unique to a special relationship to Israel, 
and there was only one covenant nation, only one covenant people, and that is the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And so, to summarize, no other nation could be guilty of their sin. Now, the fourth ramification, the commitment of the unpardonable sin by this generation, for this generation, means two things. Number one, the offer of the kingdom is now rescinded. It is withdrawn, and they lost out the opportunity to see the kingdom established in their day. But uh, secondly, there is now a judgment hanging over the generation, as I mentioned, that will finally hit 40 years later. And so the kingdom offer is now rescinded, and they will not see the kingdom established in their day. What's happened here is a, a, a certain Jewish generation goes beyond the point of no return, and no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment, and this is the third time this has occurred in the history of Israel. The first time you see this happening is in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, Numbers 13 and 14, the sin of Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea happens to be a very beautiful oasis right on the border of the Promised Land. So once you walk past Kadesh Barnea, that will put you inside the Promised Land. From that oasis, Moses sent out 12 spies who came back 40 days later. And all of them agreed on one thing. The land is all that God said it was, a land that flows with milk and honey. But then came a key point of disagreement. Only two of the 12 men said, God is with us, we can take the land. But 10 said, oh no, because of the numerical superiority of the Canaanites and also the military strength, no way we can possibly take the land. And as people do today, they make the faulty assumption the majority must always be right. And so there was a massive rebellion against the authority of Aaron and Moses. The two men were almost killed in a mob scene till God intervened. But at that point, God entered into judgment with the Exodus generation. And the judgment was they'll all have to now wander in the desert for a 40-year period. In that 40-year period, all who came out of Egypt will die out, except for the two good spies and those below the age of 20. So that 40 years later will be a new nation, a nation that was born as freemen in the desert and not the slaves in Egypt, so would be allowed to enter the land under Joshua. Here again, once a point of no return is reached, no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. And Numbers chapter 14 even says the people repented. And verse 20 even says God did forgive their sin. It did not affect anyone's individual salvation. But now they had to pay the physical consequences of going beyond the point of no return, which was physical death outside the land. And keep in mind, even Moses had to die outside the land because of a sin he committed. But it did not affect his salvation. But he too would not enter the promised land by way of a divine discipline. <clears throat> the second time this happens is in the days of Manasseh. And Manasseh was the most cruel king Jerusalem ever had. Under his kingship, he turned the Temple Mount, the temple mount into a major center of idolatry. And he also uh, fell into the sin of, of human sacrifice. And he went beyond other king stuff that were bad, and he practiced human sacrifice. And finally, a point of no return is reached. And God decreed the coming judgment by the hand of Babylon that will destroy the city and also the first temple. And the Jews will go into 70 years of captivity. Here again, once a point of no return is reached, no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. And indeed, towards the end of his reign, Manasseh repented. He became a safe man. He was followed in kingship by the righteous rule of King Josiah, who brought revival throughout the land. But God simply said he will not bring on the calamity in Josiah's day, but the calamity itself was now inevitable. A point of no return is reached. And not long after Josiah's death, the Babylonians came. And now here in Matthew 12, for the third time, a specific generation goes beyond the point of no return. 
What it means is that no matter how many Jewish people will believe, and myriads did come to believe, nothing can change the, the fact of coming physical judgment. It does not affect individual Jews coming to faith and being saved. But the, no matter how many become believers, the physical judgment will come inevitably, and the point of no return has been reached. After hearing these words of rebuke and judgment, in verse 38, the Pharisees tried to retake the offensive and say, uh, Teacher, we would say, Son, from you, the implication is he hadn't done enough to authenticate his messianic claims. Between chapters 4 and 12, um, he's performed many signs of wonders, including signs of wonders never done before in biblical history. In spite of this, they rejected him. As now Jesus announces his new policy concerning the purpose of his, of his signs. So verse 39 and 40, he points out that for the nation of Israel, there'll be no more signs except one sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. He will continue to perform many miracles after this event, but the purpose of his miracles now changes. No longer will the purpose be to serve as signs for Israel, the purpose now will be to train the 12 apostles for the new kind of work they'll have to conduct because of that rejection, the kind of work they'll be doing in the book of Acts. But for the nation, there'll be no more signs except one sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. And that sign will come to Israel three different times. First will be the resurrection of Lazarus. Second will come the resurrection of Jesus himself. And thirdly will come the resurrection of the two witnesses during the Great Tribulation. That's the only sign he will give them publicly. Then he picks up the theme that they interrupted, the theme of judgment. But notice now the focus on this specific generation. The men of Nineveh shall stand up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Verse 42, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. He now brings in the example of two Gentiles from the Hebrew Bible, the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. These were Gentiles who had a lot less light to respond to, but they did respond to lesser light. And so the great white throne judgment, these Gentiles would be able to stand and condemn this specific Jewish generation for rejecting the greater light and being guilty of the unpardonable sin. The words of judgment conclude in verses 43 through 45 with a story of a different demon. He deals with a demon that was indwelling a person but then chose to leave. It was, he was not cast out. He was simply left on his own free will looking for a better flat than which to live. He searches for a while, but when he could find no vacancies, he goes back to the person he was indwelling earlier. When he finds him again, we read in verse 44, he finds him swept, he finds him garnished, but notice also he finds him still empty. Because in this interval period, when they were freed of any demonic indwelling, he was not indwelled by some other spirit, be it the Holy Spirit or another demonic spirit. So since he, he um, was stayed empty, this demon is able to go back in. But he doesn't want to live by himself anymore. He invites seven of his buddies to join him. And in verse 45, the Messiah says, the last state of that man has become worse than the first. At the first, he only had one demon in him, but now he has eight demons in him. Now, the point of the story is that last phrase of verse 45, even so will it be also unto this evil generation. Now, when this generation began, it began with the preaching of John the Baptist, and the calling of John was for them to, um, for John to meet, to introduce the Messiah, for them to accept the Messiah. However, with the, with the rejection of his Messiahship, with this unpardonable sin, the words, <coughs> he now withdraws the offer. And so the, in the first uh, result is that he will no longer be... Uh, offering them signs and wonders for the sake of, uh, of, of uh, accepting his messiahship, but now he will follow a policy of performing signs and wonders only for his own disciples. 
Now the second change, or the second result, is to, is to deal with the issue of his signs and wonders, but more specifically the people for whom these miracles are performed. Until Matthew 12, he performed miracles for the benefit of the masses. He did not require them to have faith first. A very good example is found in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus walked, uh, walked up to a paralytic and healed him. And notice three things. Number one, the man did not know who Jesus was. Secondly, he did not know who this man claimed to be. And thirdly, there was no faith involved on the part of the man because at this stage, faith was not essential for these miracles to occur. They were there to get them to believe. That will change after the events of Matthew 12. From now on, he'll perform miracles only by responding to individuals. And now he will require them to have faith first. And so, to, to summarize, his signs and wonders go from the, from the multitudes to the individuals. Now, the third result is the message that he and the apostles will now be proclaiming. Until this point, he went all over Israel, city to city, and synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. But now he will no longer be uh, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. He will tell his disciples to keep silence about his Messiahship. One example is in Matthew chapter 16. Peter makes his famous confession and says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the God, the Living One. And what does Jesus tell Peter? Don't tell anyone I am the Messiah. And they too must follow this new policy of silence until that will be rescinded in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. And then the fourth change has to do with his method of teaching. Until this point, he taught the people clearly, distinctly, in terms that they both could and did understand. A good example is Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And when he was finished, Matthew points out the people understood what he was saying, and more significantly, where he differed with the scribes and Pharisees. But now he changed his method of teaching. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, on what day? The same day the rejection occurred, the same day the unpardonable sin was committed. On that day, we read verse 3, he spoke to them many things in parables. From now on, whenever he teaches publicly, it will always be parabolically. So verse 13, those disciples ask him, why are you speaking to them in parables that were not used to him teaching that way? He points out the two main reasons for the parabolic method of teaching. The first main reason um, is to reveal the truth to the apostles, to those who believe. But the second reason is to hide the truth from the masses, to teach them in terms that they cannot and will not understand. By now they receive sufficient light to respond correctly. They responded incorrectly with the unpardonable sin, and now no further light will be given to them. And therefore, he speaks to them publicly, only in, par in parables. Now skip down to verse 34, Matthew 13, 34. All these things spoke Jesus in parables unto multitudes, and notice the very next phrase. And without a parable spoke he nothing unto them. Without a parable spoke he nothing unto them. Now this is not a true statement before Matthew 12 was absolutely true after Matthew 12. Whatever it teaches publicly, it will be parabolically in terms that they cannot and will not understand. Then not even the apostles, by the way, understand those parables. But then when he's alone with the apostles, as in verse 36, he then left the multitudes to his house, and then the disciples come to him and ask, explain unto us the parables. The parables... So the first one he spoke of particularly. So not even the apostles understand the parables, but when he's alone with them, he'll explain the meaning of the parables because for them the purpose will be to illustrate the truth. It's impossible to appreciate why his ministry changes so radically in these four areas. Let's see how important the events of Matthew chapters 12 and 13 are. It sets the stage for the second half of his ministry, it sets the stage for the events coming up in the book of Acts. It sets the stage for the new entity to come into being, the Kehillah, the, ex the Ecclesia, 
the church, the body, the Messiah, and sets the stage for Jewish history for the next 2,000 or so years, a very crucial turning point. Let's turn to Matthew 16. Even after the events of Matthew 12, now and then they come asking for a sign, as they do in chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, trying him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. But his answer from now on is always the same. And verse 4 says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of Jonah. He left them and departed. And that will be his basic answer. When they come asking for signs, there'll be no more signs except this one sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. Again, coming three times, Lazarus, Messiah, and the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Now, with this background, let's turn to John 11. Give you a bit of a brain... uh, break for now. Let me tell you the second rabbi's story. The synagogue, was, uh, the synagogue school which was attached to the synagogue was growing, and it was getting more and more crowded, and so a decision was made by the rabbi and the elders of the synagogue to expand the uh, school, the schoolroom. And he hired several workers from him to do the job. And while they were working, he went out to see how they were doing. And he noticed one worker doing something strange. He pulls out a nail out of his back and looks at it and hammers it in. He pulls out a second nail out of his back and throws it away. So some nails he hammered in, but some nails he threw away. Rabbi asked him, why are you throwing these good nails away? And the man said, well, when I pulled the nail out of the back and looked at it, I know sometimes they put their head at the wrong end of the nail. I can't hammer in that way. No, no, said the rabbi, you don't understand. These are for the other side of the building. Back back to the Bible, folks. In John 11, we're given a lot of detail, 44 verses worth of detail, concerning the resurrection of Lazarus. Keep in mind, Lazarus was not the first person that he raised from the dead. dead. All the other resurrections are covered from two to four verses. They're witnessed to only by a few, and a few witnesses are then told to tell no one about it. In sharp contrast to all the other resurrections, this was given a lot of detail, 44 verses worth of detail. In the place of being witnessed to by the few, it is witnessed to by the many. A multitude is observing this sign and wonder taking place. So what makes this, this miracle unique is the one sign he still promised to give them publicly, the sign of resurrection. And when this sign is given, they'll need to respond. And once we understand a bit more clearly the relationship of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, uh, certain things in this text begin to make sense. For example, in verses 1 through 5, a message comes to Jesus from the two sisters informing him Lazarus is ill. And the intent of this message is for him to come quickly to Bethany and heal Lazarus before he passes away. From where he was living at this point of time, Whereas at this point of time, it would be only a one-day walk to Bethany. He had plenty of time to get there in time. And you expect to read, as soon as he heard about the illness, he departed for Bethany. But notice what verse 6 says. When, therefore, what for? For the very reason he heard that he was sick, he had bought at that time two days in the place where he was. For the very reason of the illness, he doesn't go anywhere. He's deliberately waiting for Lazarus to die. Only after Lazarus dies, in verses 14 through 16, does he begin moving towards Bethany. But even then, he walks rather slow, and the one-day trip takes four days to get there. Now, 
Now, people often expand on this passage, they focus on him showing his love for Mary and Martha, no doubt that's part of it. But it's always good to look at the textual reason. Why did he do certain things at certain places at certain times? Now, skip down to verse 42 and notice the reason he's raising Lazarus at this point. And I know that you hear me, <clears throat> I know that you hear me always, but because of the multitude that stand around, I said it, that they, the multitude, may believe that you did send me. Notice clearly that the primary purpose for raising Lazarus is for, is for them to come to faith and to come to believe in his messianic claims. And this is the one son he promised to give them, and so a multitude of people are seeing it. And so by the end of verse 44, Lazarus is resurrected, and the first son of Jonah has been given. There'll be two different responses. In verse 45, many Jewish people respond correctly and do believe. But in verse 46, many others still be laboring under this leadership complex. Report was occurred to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees knew that this is the sign he would give them because he was speaking to them when he made the promise. And so they must respond. So in verse 47, the chief priests who were the Sadducean members of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Pharisaic members of Sanhedrin, they gathered the council together. In verses 48 through 52, they deliberate and go one step further beyond what happened back in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, they rejected his claims and the basis of being demonized. And now they go a step further and choose to sentence him to death. And so verse 53 says, From that day four they took counsel, they might put him to death. And this decision to put him to death begins filtering down to the public. So read in verse 57, Now the chief priests had given commandment, If any man knew where he was, he should show it, that they might take him. And with this act, the first sign of Jonah in the resurrection of Lazarus is officially rejected. Now let's go to Luke's account, chapter 19. The context of what we're about to read is the context of the triumphal entry. And literally, myriads of Jewish people are conducting Jesus to the, into Jerusalem, crying out, Hosanna, more correct, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That statement from its original first century context was the official messianic greeting. The rabbis were teaching, whenever the Messiah comes, he must be welcomed with these words. And that's the reason is that that is the phrase that comes from a messianic psalm, Psalm 118 and verse 26. Psalm 118 and verse 26. So when they're using these words and applying them to Jesus, they're proclaiming him by the myriads to be the Messiah. And one could think that circumstances could still change. Except for the fact that the unpardonable sin has already been committed. And because of its unpardonableness, no amount of repenting can now change the fact of coming judgment. So in the context of Marius proclaiming him to be the Messiah, when he speaks, notice, he speaks words of judgment. Verse 41. When he drew nigh, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known this day, even you, the things which belong unto peace, but now they hid from your eyes. For they shall come upon you, and your enemies shall cast up a bank about you, encompass you round, and keep you in on every side, and shall dash you to the ground, and your children within you, and they shall not leave in you one stone on top of another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And 40 years after these words were spoken, it was fulfilled. Again, once a point of no return is reached, no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. Let's go back to Matthew, and let's look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 
This chapter has only one theme that runs throughout this chapter, which is the Messiah's renunciation or denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees, the leadership of Israel, spiritually speaking, in that day. And he pronounces seven woes upon them. And while there are a variety of different sins, they form a circle because the first woe and then the seventh woe will deal with the very same sin. And the first woe is in verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye enter not in yourselves, neither suffer you them that are entering to enter. In the first world, they're condemned for two reasons. Number one, they are rejecting his messianic claims. But even secondly, they are leading the nation to reject him as well. What he says in the first world, he elaborates with the seventh world in verses 29 through uh, 36. And he points out they'll be held accountable not only for rejecting his messiahship, they'll be held accountable for all of the blood of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Because everything the prophets were going to say about the Messiah but now had been said. And the Old Testament can have been closed for four centuries, four and a half centuries by this point of time. Furthermore, they had the ministry of the Messiah who not only performed miracles others did, but also miracles no one else could do. In spite of this, they rejected him. So now he says they'd be held accountable for the whole body of revealed written truth. Now keep in mind that when the Messiah used the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, he used it in the order of the Jewish Bibles, not in the order of the Christian Bibles. The number of books between the Jewish and Christian Bible is the same, but the order is not the same. The first book is the same, Genesis. The last book is not, uh, is not uh, Malachi, but Second Chronicles. Now skip down to verse 35 and notice he names two men. Found, one found in Genesis and one found in the Second Chronicles. Then if that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, the blood of Abel, who was mentioned in Genesis, the righteous unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom he slew between the sanctuary and the altar, and that's found in Second Chronicles, the last book of the Jewish order. And by naming these two men, he says, you'll be held accountable for everything from Genesis to Second Chronicles. It was a Jewish figure of speech, meaning the whole body of revealed written truth. Just as we would have, uh, we would say, our own figure of speech from Genesis to Revelation, that is our figure of speech for the whole body of revealed written truth. This generation, guilty of the unpardonable sin, will now help be held accountable for the whole body of revealed written truth. Let's go to the other side of your outline. A few days after he speaks these words will come the second sign of Jonah, which will be the resurrection of the Messiah himself. That will be rejected in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. And the stoning of Stephen by the Sanhedrin will mark the official rejection of the second sign of Jonah. That's why only as of Acts 8, Will the gospel go out for the first time to non-Jews? For the first seven chapters, it stays within the Jewish frame of reference. The point I've made so far is, it was Israel's leaders that led the nation to reject him on the grounds of being demonized. In light of that then, what is the precondition to the second coming? What's the one thing that must be fulfilled that, um, before the second coming would occur? And this is one of the key differences between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture has no preconditions whatsoever. It could happen any moment of time. It could even happen today. And that's part of God's program for the body of the Messiah. But the second coming is God's program for the Jewish people, for Israel. And that has this key precondition. Turn now to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26, Moses especially wrote prophetically what would become Israel's history in due course, and most of this chapter has now been fulfilled in the course of Jewish history. So by the end of verse 39, he points out Israel will be dispersed and scattered throughout the world. But this is not the end of the story. Look at verse 40. 
and they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of the fathers in the trespass which they trespassed against me, and also that because they were country unto me, also were country unto them, and brought them into land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, I'll remember him, and I will remember the land. In verse 41, notice God has every intention of fulfilling all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, especially as they will pertain to the borders of the promised land. I will remember the land. But the precondition is found in verse 40. They must confess the iniquity of their fathers and their own iniquity. The word iniquity, notice, is singular or definite article. There was one specific sin that must be confessed, a specific sin that was committed by their ancestors and then merely continued by them that must be confessed before they'll ever have all of the, prom- all of the borders of the promised land and be able to settle in all the promised land and live in peace in all of the promised land. The second passage is Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, Jeremiah lists some of the blessings the Jewish people finally enjoy in the Messianic kingdom. So in verse 14, they'll be gathered one by one until every Jew is back in the land of Zion. In verse 15, in that day, God will give them righteous shepherds, never again be guilty of leading the people astray. In verse 16, they won't so much as think of rebuilding the Ark of the Covenant, because in verse 17, God himself in visible form in the person of the Messiah ruled from the city of Jerusalem. In verse 18, the Jews will be so reunited so as never to be split into two Jewish kingdoms again. These are their blessings in the Messianic kingdom. But the prerequisite for these things to happen is found in verse 13. Only confess your iniquity that you have transgressed against Jehovah your God. Again, the word iniquity is singular and specific. There's one specific sin they need to confess before there can be an establishment of the Messianic kingdom. Now we'll go to Zechariah chapter 13. Excuse me, Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah will be the second book from the back of the Old Testament. The last three chapters of Zechariah are one unit of thought, one prophetic discourse God gave the prophet. Chapter 13 speaks of the cleansing of Israel's sins. Chapter 14 deals with two more things. He describes rather vividly the second coming in chapter 14, verses 1 through 15, followed by the Messianic kingdom in chapter 14, verses 16 to 21. However, the... um, the second coming and kingdom of chapter 14 and the cleansing of Israel's sins of chapter 13 are all preconditioned by chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look unto me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. Before that can be, a national cleansing, a second coming kingdom, what must happen first is Israel looking unto the one whom they have previously pierced. They must mourn for him as one mourns for only son. In other words, until chapter 12, verse 10 is fulfilled, the prophecies of chapter 13 and 14 cannot be fulfilled. It must, there must be a national salvation of Israel. Now we'll go to the first of the minor prophets, Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. 
Now, throughout the fifth chapter of Hosea, God is doing the speaking. God is still speaking as we come to verse 15, where God says, I will go and return to my place until they confess their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they shall seek me earnestly. Now, before anyone can return to a place, he must first leave it. After leaving it, he could then return to it. God is speaking. God says he's returning to his place. God's place is heaven. Before God can return to heaven, he must first leave it. And when did God ever leave heaven? He left heaven at the incarnation, when God became man in the person of Yeshua, the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But then because of an offense committed against him, and again the word offense is both singular and definite, because of one specific offense committed against him, he returned to heaven when he ascended from the Mount of Olives. The verse goes on to say he will not come back to this earth until this offense is confessed, acknowledged. Until that offense is confessed, there will be no second coming. Now, keep your finger here. We'll come back to this passage momentarily, so just keep your finger here. And turn back to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. In this chapter a few moments ago, noting this is the Messiah's renunciation of the spiritual leaders of Israel for leading the nation to reject him. But as he closes this renunciation, he closes with a lament. In the verse 37, he points out that for three and a half years he's been working with Israel, trying to bring them to repentance. But they would not, literally they will did not when they rejected him. So in verse 38, that their house, meaning the Jewish temple, will now lie desolate. It will be destroyed 40 years after these words are spoken. But still, now look at verse 39. He's still addressing the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he says in verse 39, For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, from the, as I mentioned previously, from the first century Judaism context, this was the official Messianic greeting. And the Jewish people were to use these words when the Messiah comes, because these are the words that come out of Psalm 118, which is a Messianic psalm. And obviously they would never say this, they first accept him to be that Messianic king. And the point is this, that just as the Jewish leaders once led the nation to reject him, uh, they will have to come when the Jewish leaders will lead the nation to accept him. That is the precondition to the second coming. And basically, they'll have to do two things. Number one, confess the national sin of rejecting him on the grounds of being demonized. But secondly, to plead for his return, to mourn for him as one mourns for only son. Until these two things occur, there'll be no second coming. These are two elements to the basis under capital B, to confess the sin and to plead for his return. Let's go back to Hosea. Here we have one of those situations where a chapter got divided where it should not have been. The first three verses of chapter 6 belong with chapter 5, and chapter 6 which should have begun at verse 4. But in chapter 5, verse 15, we notice that he won't come back to the earth until they seek his face. And chapter 6, verses 1, 2, 3 is the response to the demand of 5.15. The words are the words of a decree or a call which should be issued by leaders. Come, let us return unto Jehovah. He had torn and he will heal us. He had smitten and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up and we shall live before him. Let us know, let us follow on to know the Lord is going forth to show us the morning and he will come unto us as the rain, as the latter rain that waters the earth. In the closing days of the tribulation, in connection with the campaign of Armageddon, which is the affliction of 515, the Jewish leaders will finally recognize why they have suffered all these things and what they must do about it. And once they come to that point, they'll issue this call, to national repentance, and that will trigger the last three days before the second coming. 
for the first two of these last three days, they'll confess the national sin. On the third day, the whole nation will come to faith, and they will plead for the Messiah to return. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8, Isaiah 66, verse 8, the nation will be born in one day. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9, Zechariah 3, verse 9, God removed the iniquity of the land in one day. And Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, all Israel will be saved. And by confessing the national sin, that fulfills the first precondition to the second coming, and then their pleading for him to return will fulfill the second element. Now, when they plead for his return, and when they confess the national sin, in the first element, they'll use Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9, is usually well known to be the most detailed prophecy about Messiah's death and resurrection, and it is exactly that. But it's a little bit more than that. As you read those nine verses, what you will be reading is Israel confessing the sin of rejecting him. They thought he was suffering for his own sins, and now they come to recognize he was suffering for their sins. And by confessing the sin of rejecting him, that will fulfill the first precondition. Then they must call upon him to return. And the passages that provide some details are on your outline, Isaiah 64, Psalm 79, and Psalm 80. We'll look at Psalm 80 briefly. Let's look at it. The theme of Psalm 80 will be spelled out in the first three verses. Verse 1, give air O shepherd of Israel, you that leads Joseph like a flock, you that sits above the cherubim shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your might and come to save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. And this is the theme of the whole psalm. Israel begging for God to intervene because the Jewish people are facing a very dangerous predicament. The whole psalm is addressed to God, but notice who they're asking for specifically in verse 17. And verse 17 reads, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Notice the one they're asking for specifically is the one at the right hand of God. That's none other than Jesus the Messiah, who's been sitting there at the right hand of God the Father ever since his ascension from the Mount of Olives. But they will come at the Jewish request from the Dusom. He'll rise up from that seat, return to this earth, destroy the enemies of Israel, and finally set up the Messianic kingdom. And uh, ultimately, the, this account is going to have a much happier ending. Let me provide three applications of our, of our study this evening. The first application is we'll understand a bit better the biblical foundations of anti-Semitism and why Satan has had this long, unending war uh, against the Jewish people from the time of Abraham. And uh, because he knows the precondition of second coming, he's had a strategy to try to destroy the Jews throughout Jewish history. For example, that's why the... the um, so-called Christian crusades occurred. That's why the Russian pogroms occurred. That's why Nazi Holocaust occurred. And that's why Revelation 12 says that once Satan is confined into the, to the earth during the tribulation, and, um, and he's cast down to the earth at the midpoint of tribulation, he will then know his time is short. As long as time is short, he will organize a persecution against the Jews. It will be a Nazi-like persecution worldwide to try to annihilate every Jew living to avoid the second coming. Anti-Semitism, many form, whether it's active or passive, whether it's racial or religious or ethnic or academic or political or theological, is all part of the satanic program to annihilate the Jews once and for all to avoid the second coming. A second thing we'll understand is this. Why Satan has used one name more than any other name to persecute Jews. And since the 4th century, 95% of all persecutions against the Jews were in the name of the three C's. The church, the cross, and Christ. The church, the cross, and Christ. 
Dayton knows the name they have to call upon to bring him back. So his strategy to make the name odious in the Jewish community has become odious. But most Jews don't understand or know about the Jesus of Scripture. They're reacting to the Jesus of Jewish and church history. And, that, and so Satan has used the strategy to make, them, uh, to make the name odious so they will never call upon him. And the third application is the understanding the importance of both supporting and practicing Jewish evangelism because part of Jewish evangelism requires us, and we talk to Jewish people, to distinguish between the Yeshua, the Jesus of Scripture, from the Christ of church history. Now, until a Jewish mind can make that separation, it's very difficult for him to, pop, to come to believe that this Jesus could be the Messiah. And uh, fortunately, in our ministries, for various branches, we've seen our staff being able to do this and lead many Jewish people to the Lord. But the math of these centuries of persecution is the major stumbling block today in Jewish evangelism. And this is the uh, principle.